the final session, how do we pray? And so we're going to try to ask and answer that question uh, now. So we've built up Old Testament theology of prayer, New Testament theology of prayer. Hopefully you're reflecting back on that question of the definition earlier. You're rounding out some pillars, some foundations on scripture you might go to to understand and inform your definition. So let's synthesize this all on the ground, and we're going to say, how do we pray? And then let's, uh, if you like, uh, get a little outline there going, and you can see that I've tried to make them all uh, fit in nicely with one another. And so we're going to start with the first one that we've learned, hopefully, in our time together so far, which is that we pray specifically. And I want to start off with this J.C. Ryle quote. I want you to know, by the way, that this quote might look long, but it was a whole lot longer before I cut it down. (laughs) So... The whole quote, by the way, is phenomenal, and I highly recommend it, but we're going to read, essentially, a shortened version of this really good quote. So, J.C. Ryle says, It should not be enough for us to confess that we are sinners. We should name the sins for which our conscience tells us we are most guilty. It should not be enough for us to ask for holiness. We should name the graces in which we feel most deficient. We should think of, or sorry, it says, What should we think of the patient who told his doctor that he was ill, but he never went into particulars. What should we think of the wife who told her husband she was unhappy, but did not specify the cause? What should we think of the child who tells his father he is in trouble, but says nothing more? Christ is the true bridegroom of the soul, the true physician of the heart, and the real father of all his people. And the implication there obviously is, therefore we ask specifically of God for things. And I like what he, what he spells out when he says the specificity of it. We don't only specifically confess sin. We don't only name specific sins that we're confessing. But more than that, we specifically ask for certain kinds of graces which we see that we need. Now, that doesn't mean we have a perfect understanding. But what it does mean is that we ask in the way that we feel need. And God says that he's a good father. And then when we ask specifically, remember that goes into him hearing us into his will We don't change his mind. And then out on the other end comes the kind of answer and response that was good for our souls. So even if we ask specifically and we ask wrongly, remember, prayer doesn't change God's mind. God's mind has been fixed from the beginning of time. We don't change his mind in prayer. And in fact, uh, I think it's R.C. Sproul who says this, if your prayers could change God's mind, it would be wise for you to stop praying. Because you're not, if, if God has to take human counsel and that has to somehow factor into how things turn out in the end, You might pray for some things that are pretty bad. You just don't know how bad they are or how bad they're going to work out. So we don't change God's mind when we pray. But nevertheless, we confess specific sins to God. We ask for specific kinds of graces given to us. And so how we pray, we can say in summary, we pray specifically for things that we need and forgiveness that we require. Specificity also is a means of reflection for us. Specificity allows us to actually reconcile the kinds of things we're asking for. Remember, we don't want to be people heaping up empty phrases. That's what Jesus says in Matthew uh, 6, verse 7. We don't want to be the Gentiles who heap up empty words. And when you say, Lord, I'm a sinner, you might just be heaping up an empty phrase when you say that, unless you've thought through all the particulars. And in which case you've thought through all the particulars, just go ahead and name those as well. Because you've thought them through, just name them specifically. God will deal with them because he's a good, just, and righteous judge. Same thing with the graces that we need. We don't say, Lord, preserve us. Lord, keep us. Ask him for the daily kinds of things that you need grace in, the daily kind of mercies that he needs to give to you. Because if you've thought them through, if you're not heaping up an empty praise, you could just go ahead and name out the thing itself. So specificity guards us against that kind of vain repetition that we were warned about. 
Secondly, how do we pray? We pray theologically. And what I mean by that is we pray in a way that's rooted and grounded in how scripture tells us how we pray. Now, if you're wondering, well, I'm not a theologian or I'm not, I don't have a seminary degree or anything like that. How do I put together the theologically way of praying? The easy thing to do is just to take all the verses that we've assembled so far and just start there. And start by reading the text, meditating on the text, reflecting on the text, and praying in response to your reading and your reflection and your meditation. There's a quote in here from George Mueller. Now, if you don't know who he is, he is a better prayer than you will likely ever attain, even with your best efforts. And he says this regarding his own prayer life. He says, formerly when I rose, I began to pray as soon as possible. How many of you could say that earnestly? But often I spent a quarter of an hour to an hour on my knees, struggling to pray while my mind wandered. Now I rarely have this problem as my heart is nourished by the truth of the word of God. He says he doesn't go first to prayer and then later reads his Bible. He says he picks up his Bible, meditates on the goodness of this, and this nourishes his soul and drives focused prayer out of him. This is the guy who says before he did this, he would sit on his knees with his mind wandering for an hour, still trying to pray. If that happened to me for five minutes, I think I would stop praying. But George Mueller says this is his resolve to pray, and even he needs to meditate on scripture in order to pray theological kinds of prayers that think highly of God. And so if he needs it, certainly we need it. And matter of fact, if he didn't need it, nevertheless, Jesus Christ, through the Lord's Prayer, has shown us that he summarizes large meditations on scripture in the Lord's Prayer. He says, our Father in heaven. Well, how does he know God's in heaven? He has that theology because God has taught it to him. He studied it in the Old Testament. Hallowed be your name. How do we know that? Oh, it's one of the Ten Commandments. He's reflected on that. He's summarizing and he's bringing it forth to teach his disciples. And so the whole Lord's Prayer is a summary statement of theological truth that we're taught to pray. And so if Jesus needed to summarize theological truth, then we do as well as we pray because it's all coming out of the body of scripture that we have. And hopefully tonight has been a little bit of an investment into that well that you can now draw out of. How do we pray? Thirdly, we can pray consistently or we should pray consistently. Now there's a text for this and I want to read it to you. It's Luke chapter 11, verse 5. Now, I don't think I'm in danger of stealing my own thunder because it will be quite some time before we actually get here in Luke as a church. So I'll just cover it again when we get there then. So Luke chapter 11 and verse 5, this is right after the Lord's Prayer is summarized in Luke's account of his gospel. And in verse 5, he says, Which of you who has a friend will give him, will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer to him, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So he's basically saying, if you knock on your friend's door, he's not going to give you your stuff. Just keep knocking. And eventually out of his annoyance and frustration, he's going to get up and deal with you and send you away. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and, it will f and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. And what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so will the Heavenly Father give his Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? The emphasis of this parable, or these series of questions from Jesus, 
is the illustration of consistency in our prayer. He's saying if wicked people can, get, can go give good things out of consistency, then surely a good God who wants to give us things will give even more out of our consistency. I like the way Matthew Henry summarized it there, so I put it there for you. It says, we prevail men by our impudence, meaning our regularly going to them, because they are displeased with it, they're annoyed by it, so then we beat them and we get what we want. But with God, we prevail not because he's displeased by it, but because he's pleased with our impudence. He likes the fact that we go before him and petition him regularly, and so therefore he's pleased with it, and that is the foundation of our consistent prayer. How can we also pray? Relationally. So not only specifically, theologically, consistently, but also relationally. Now we've seen this already in Paul's works. So I'm just going to read the Philemon text and not skip over it uh, much more, or not expound on it much more. But in Philemon, if you know that little book in your New Testament, Paul writes a letter to uh, Philemon, who is a slave owner. And Philemon owns a slave named Onesimus. And you'll notice how Paul starts his letter, his petition to Philemon. He says in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective to the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, the reason I read that is because what Paul is now about to do in the letter, he's about to ask Philemon to do something that's different than the normal pattern that Philemon would hold. He's about to ask Philemon to let Onesimus go and make him from a slave into a freedman and elevate him to an equal status so that uh, Onesimus can either serve Paul or help Philemon out in his enterprises. But before he goes to asking him, before he goes to demanding something of him, he says in a very relational way, he's praying for him in all these things. I think we can learn a lot from that because we're very businessy and get things done kind of people in the West. And so we need to learn how to do this when we're interceding uh, and we're interacting with people. If you're about to have a difficult conversation with someone, you're about to try to correct some kind of sin, some kind of disobedience that you see, a good place to start is by letting them know either how you're praying for them or starting off in prayer, interceding for their behalf. You pray relationally for the person before you ever demand anything of them. So specifically, theologically, consistently, relationally. And then the last one that I think is worth noting is corporately. This is uh, John Onowichaka. I've quoted him, I think, a few times now, but this is a quote that I left in the outline. He says this, I've learned to see churches in one of two ways, as those that pray or those that don't. A church's commitment to prayer is one of the greatest determiners of its effectiveness in ministry. He doesn't say the church's budget. He doesn't say how many people attend the church. He says the biggest thing that determines a church's effectiveness or not is a church's prayer life. Its commitment to prayer is what will determine, in his mind, its success or failure. He says it's such a big factor that he doesn't see big churches and small churches anymore. He just sees those that pray and those that don't. And I think we would be wise to learn a lot from that. Corporate patterns of prayer matter for the life of the body. Now, how, and how, how can we apply this as a church? Well, the first thing that we can do is we can regularly resolve to engage in prayer, not individually, primarily, but also together as a body. Which means uh, if you live close to people or you live with people that go to church or go to church with you,
then it would be wise for you to regularly engage in corporate prayer with those people. You would want to pray with them, together with them, and you'd want to do so in a way that uh, is regular, it's committed, it's uh, a fixed time, just like we talked about earlier, praying and planning for that. You would want to do the same thing here with corporate prayer. The, uh, the other way to learn from this is as a church, uh, in, in, when we pray, we pray before service every single Sunday. And if you're, if you're convinced that prayer is a big thing, it's a big determining step, then resolve to plan in your schedule coming to prayer and praying with the church on behalf of the people, the other people in the church, the rest of the church in America, the rest of the church in Indianapolis. Resolve to do that. Not because it's sin if you don't do it, but because it's a big deal to pray, so much so that it determines the health and the success of any given church. Last piece of this, if we're applying prayer, applying prayer corporately, is keeping in mind ways in which uh, prayer is somehow not something that's a good production that you can make, which means you know, if you, if you have a, a really great speaker or preacher and you can really get them focused in, you can make you know, a whole sermon series out of what they've done, that's very public, that's very publishable, you can really sum that up nicely. But a prayer service isn't like as marketable in that same way. So in a marketplace kind of church system, big speakers thrive, big worship sets thrive, but prayer tends to die off. And that's why we see big churches with very little prayer. And so we should resolve to be against that and resolved against that. So we should resolve to pray, to pray regularly, to pray consistently, and to pray not because it's good to the outside world, but because we know how much prayer matters for the life of the church. If you want to see how important it is, we're not going to turn there. We just don't have time. But I've listed for you all the places in Acts. Actually, no. I've listed to you an edited version of all the places in Acts where you see prayer as like an integral part of how the church operates. So if you ask the question, how did the church get itself off the ground in an oppressive Roman system right after Jesus has left them, what do they do? They pray to make a big decision. They pray for their daily life. They pray for boldness in their gospel witness. They pray to rescue Peter out of prison. And then, they, and then Peter actually does get rescued out of prison. They pray for healings. They, they're just praying about literally everything. In fact, so much so that the apostles have to appoint deacons in the church so that they can commit themselves more fully to teaching and to praying. And that's it. They don't commit themselves to CEO models of business. They don't commit themselves to other kinds of things. They commit themselves to prayer and to the teaching of the word. And there's much to be learned from that, namely, how do we prioritize prayer in our corporate gathering as a church as well? And so I think there's a lot of reflection that needs to be done, I think even for myself and uh, for most of us in the church. And if we can think of ways in which we can incorporate prayer on a corporate basis better, I would love to hear ways in which you guys think that is possible. So that all being said, the how do we pray section, I think, has now been fully addressed. We can close there. I'll close in prayer and then we can do Q&A and kind of tie this thing on up. So. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you reveal yourself in your word to us. Lord, you come not from a place of high and lofty glory, but you condescend yourself to the form of a servant to become like us, to walk with us, to live in our sinful condition so that you can make us reconcile back to you. Lord, it is on that foundation and that truth that we can praise you, that we can thank you, that we can bless your name because we've been moved out of one kingdom and into another. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. And Lord, we are eternally grateful for that reality. 
And you didn't have to do that. You are God in heaven, ruling and reigning over all creation. And you didn't have to do that. You are self-sustaining. You don't need us in any way. But yet, out of your love and your graciousness, you have chosen to do so. Lord, you've promised in your word that your church will go forth, that your gospel will prevail. And so, Lord, we pray that your gospel does prevail. Not only in our hearts and our lives, but also in the lives of those people that we're interacting with, in our workplace, in our churches. Lord, we pray that your gospel will go forth. Lord, we pray for the death of sin in our body. Not only for our body, Lord, but for the body of the church. That sin would be something that we can prioritize and run after through the grace of your spirit. Lord, there are so many sins that our church struggles with. There are so many things that in the West we just think are not really that sinful, but are just so defiant to your word. And so we pray that you would reveal those things to us so we can better confess and so we can better repent. Not because our confession, our repentance means better salvation, but Lord, so we can really understand how fully depraved we are so we can really understand how, understand how beautiful your reconciliation was. Lord, we ask and we pray all these things, not only for us here who are present in this room right now, but also for those who are currently at work, for those who are currently traveling, for those who are in our body but not with us currently. We pray for the, the churches that are in our city, that gather on Sunday, that meet and share and preach your word, that fellowship together. We pray for them, for their leaders, for their elders, for their members, that you would preserve them as well as you have promised you will preserve us. Lord, we ask and we pray all these things on the name and basis of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.